Welcome to Toronto in June. The sun is out. The uh, HVAC is struggling to keep up with the heat in the sanctuary as you're experiencing it. We are sorry we've turned it down. We're hoping it's starting to cool down now as it responds to our ministrations, but we're glad that you are here. We are reflecting on a portion of Scripture, and uh, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, and we are now finishing, no, we're beginning the third chapter, and here to read to us from Ephesians 3, Kathy. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Paul, who's in prison, is writing to the people in Ephesus a letter for them to share with the churches in the region. And Paul here is getting to a great mystery that has been revealed, a mystery that changed the course of history and our understanding of humanity. Several years ago, before we had this building, we were renting a school, Rosedale School of the Arts. That school was right across from a subway station. It had a large lawn, and it had a very gracious uh, group of people who operated it who allowed us to park on the grass. And so with a subway station right across the street and parking on the grass, we were an attractive location for people looking for somewhere to go. Unfortunately, the upper echelon of the TDSB realized what the local superintendent was doing and decided that the lawn was off limits and they shut down our parking after several years. And in a day, 40 to 50 parking spots disappeared. And on that day, 50 people stopped coming to our church. We lost the parking, we lost the people. I decided after a couple of weeks to call one of the people who I'd noticed wasn't coming. This person had been a Christian a long time. They'd been uh, a leader in several uh, organizations, etc. And I called them up just to see how they were doing and if they were coming back. And he said, Dan, you noticed I'm not coming. I did. He had, had taken me out for breakfast and told me how good the church was. He loved the people and he loved the preaching. What I didn't know was that he also loved the parking. 
He said, Dan, I noticed I drove in three or four Sundays ago, and I, as I was going around the circle, I noticed that the parking was off limits. We couldn't park on the lawn. And so you know what I did, Dan? I just kept driving. I just kept driving, Dan, because you know what I need on Sunday morning? I need parking. What was he saying? He was saying that he came to our church because it gave him three things, good preaching, good people, and good parking. What he was saying was what many of us think but won't say, and that is this, that the church is an instrument for me. It is an instrument for me to develop myself. Church is something I do when it works for me. Like a fitness club, I do it when I want, where I want, while it works for me, until it doesn't, in which case I find another church or decide whether I'm going to go altogether. It raises the question, what is the church? And what is the church meant to be for you and me? And the answer here, I think, will subvert us, it will surprise us, it will encourage us, and it will challenge us. Because here we see a very different meaning of the church. Paul has just finished chapters 1 and 2 where he praised the three members of the Trinity, if you remember chapter 1, for saving us each individually, their respective roles, the Father architecting our salvation, the Son accomplishing it in His life, death, and resurrection, and the Spirit applying it into our lives by coming into us and applying the forgiveness to us personally. Chapter 2, which we just finished, Paul focuses on the massive transformation that has happened to us as people. We have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. We've gone from being far away from God to being reconciled and intimate with Him. These are glorious chapters, and that is what God does for us as individual people. But in the end of chapter 2 and here now in chapter 3, He talks to us as a collective and says, what is the church to be for you and me? And here He says the church is to be three stupendous things. I know we'll get to two of them. Maybe not the third. I'll wrap it into the second if needed. And that is these three things. The church is God's mystery revealed. The church is God's wisdom displayed. And the church is God's eternal purpose fulfilled. It is His mystery revealed, His wisdom displayed, His purpose fulfilled. His mystery revealed, verses 1 to 6, Paul describes what he is doing and how the mystery was made known to me, he says, by revelation, as I have written briefly before. Paul has described the church just prior to this as one new being, one new man, one new human, as it were. Spiritually speaking, we're all united to Jesus, our head, and therefore we're united together he says at the end of chapter 2, we're like bricks in a temple building. We all together create something new. Nobody knew until now. And so Paul explains how this mystery was revealed. He says, it was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. In other words, as I've already told you, and when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. It was not made known to the sons of men and women in other generations. It has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
This is something that we as humanity didn't know. Even the Christians didn't know. It had to be revealed. Paul is implying this, what every reader who read this when it was originally written would know, and that is this. Prior to this revelation, human cultures separated themselves linguistically, ethnically, imperially, by religion, by nation-state, by language. Not so different from today. Anthropologists know this to be true. This is natural, they say, to human origins. But let me add in a wrinkle that the Scriptures tell us about this because there are theological origins as well. It is found in the book of Genesis. Genesis tells the story of a tower, a tower of Babel. If you've seen the movie Babel, and most of you probably haven't, it's too old and it's a little too obscure. It's one of those arty movies. I happen to be a Kate Blanchett fan, so I saw it. It tells, I think, four different stories that are interlocking. There's a rifle that interlocks them, a, a, um, a hunter went to Morocco on a hunting trip and left his rifle for the guide. The guide gave it to his sons to use to help them in protecting their cattle. A stray bullet from their rifle struck a tourist bus and desperately injured some North American tourists. The tourists had a nanny taking care of their kids back in North America. All of these things interlocking because the point of the movie is there's a deep interlocking of humans. There's a deep unity of humans in there somewhere, but it keeps getting broken by human interactions. It keeps getting broken by human miscommunication. And that's the story of Babel. The story of humans coming together in their hubris and their pride to say, we will be like God and we will make a building that will reach to the heavens. And it's as God came down and divided them because of their pride, gave them different languages, and they divided and they became competitive and they became divisive. This is the story of humanity rooted in our hubris and our pride, which divides us from God most foundationally but also from each other, making us competitive, divisive, mutually corruptive. And until the day of Jesus, humans went about their ways this way, and we remain that way today. Look at your news. Russia and Ukraine, China's threats on Taiwan, massive unrest in many areas of Africa, the polarization and fracturing of political society south of our border, leaking into ours, human pride and division. And then a man named Jesus came, and he upended every regular pattern of human interaction that we've just talked about. He welcomed in the poor, the weak, the broken, the physically handicapped. He ate with the immoral, the downtrodden, the lepers, the adulterers, the sick, the dying. He welcomed people of different ethnicities. He healed the son of a Roman officer, hated Rome, the imperial oppressor of Israel. He then went down and, and talked with and befriended and spiritually healed a woman of Samaria, a woman who'd had multiple affairs. The Samaritans, the most hated other people group to the Jewish people. He revealed himself as one whose breadth of love, breadth of mercy, breadth of grace astounded and made uncomfortable even his disciples. And then he died. For who? 
for the good people in the world? You couldn't find any. Because filled with hubris and pride are we all. Did he die for religious people? No. John, his closest associate, the one who knew him best, put it this way in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life. Now that's a familiar phrase with Christians. It's one of the verses you get taught to memorize as a kid, but we all, most of us don't actually get what it actually means. We hear God so loved the world, and we think, oh, he just loves everyone. There's that global community he's bringing in. Yes, but that's not the primary meaning of the word world here. World in John's gospel means that part of human culture that resists God, that rejects God, that wants to be independent of God. World here has a darker primary meaning, and that's the way John is describing the world here. It's the world that did not accept him. It's the world that was in darkness. And it's the world Jesus came to die for. It's the world he did die for. The people who rejected him went their own way from him, sneered at him. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do, he said. Kelsey Grammer, veteran TV and film actor, recently said this. He said, we're surrounded by contrary information, and there's only one clarion call still from Jesus Christ saying, this is the way, the idea that you love your enemies as yourself. There's only one guy that ever preached that, and that's Jesus, and there's only one guy still saying it today, and that's still Jesus. That is Jesus. That was him, and that's who he died for his enemies, people who mocked him and rejected him. He prayed for them, he healed them, he died for them, and he rose for them. God in human flesh did this for you and me. In our hubris, in our desire to go our own independent way, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, he died for us. And then Jesus rose, ascended into heaven, and sent His Spirit into the world to do what? To take His work on the cross and to apply it to each individual person who would have faith in Jesus so that they could be forgiven, reconciled. All their debts, all their wrongs wiped away. The very people who had ignored Him and rejected Him competed for control of their lives with Him he brought them from spiritual death to life. That's what the Holy Spirit came to do. And he came at a time called Pentecost. If you know the story of Pentecost, last week was Pentecost Sunday, but if you know the story of Pentecost, the Spirit came down upon the earliest Christian leaders, and what happened? A whole crowd was there from all over the world speaking different languages, trying to come together in their Jewish faith, but separated by their languages, by Babel. And then at that moment, when the Spirit came down, He allowed the earliest Christian leaders, the apostles and disciples, to speak in the known languages of the crowd gathered. Do you see? Pentecost is the breaking of the curse of Babel and the beginning 
of the unifying of the human race that was so divided. It's the breaking and undoing of Babel or the beginning of it. Pentecost is the beginning of a new era of the brotherhood of all who believe in Jesus. And since that time, this, this idea of the universal brotherhood and sisterhood of human beings, of the universal e- equality and dignity and worth of every individual, no matter what their background, this idea has arisen from these words in the gospel through the church to the culture. From this teaching right here, these words right here, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There it is. This is where it all began. Most of you are too young to have remembered John Lennon and his music. Some of you are old enough to remember when he died. All of you have heard his hymn. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. The hymn of a secular brotherhood and sisterhood of all humanity. But there's a problem. That idea came from a gospel where there's heaven and hell and God and a Savior and Jesus. Tom Holland, popular historian in his best-selling book, Dominion, noted that he, like many others, just assumed the universal brotherhood of humanity as a given embedded in human thinking and culture until he went to Cambridge and began to do his studies in, uh, in civilizations of antiquity. Hear his words of what he found. The more years I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien I increasingly found it. It's not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I am not Spartan or Roman at all. And so then he began to investigate, where did the change happen? And he found out it was Christianity that brought in this startling, mysterious new idea that we all are equal. We all are of equal dignity and love and value. He said this, this was his conclusion, so profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of our Western civilization that it has come to be hidden from our view. As the Bishop of Oxford once refused to consider that he might be descended from an ape, Holland's not a Christian, he believes in evolution, so now are many in the West reluctant to contemplate that their values, even their lack of belief, might be traceable back to Christian origins. If you're here and you lack belief yet in Christianity, you tend to have this critique of the church, and it's a telling, persuasive one and I grant that to you freely. You tell us that we fail to love people well, that we haven't treated people throughout history with the equality and inclusivity that we should, and that critique, I concede, has much merit. We have the same critique of ourselves. We have failed to love people well. In history, the church has failed to treat people with dignity. It has ostracized people. It has been racist. It has been sexist. It has done 
all kinds of things, failing our own standards and at times failing them miserably. But I want you to think, those of you who are outside the faith for a moment, you've adopted this critique, but this critique is based on certain universal values. Where did you get them? I submit to you that if your worldview is right and we're just the product of time and chance and the smashing together of atoms in arbitrary ways, then there are no universal laws of justice, fairness, and dignity. There's just the law of survival of the fittest and the strongest get to do whatever they want to those who aren't as strong. You can't have it both ways. A man named Cornelius Van Til, thinking of this, said, we're like little children that are angry with our parents, and our mother has to pull us up so that we're eye level so we can punch her in the nose. You see, your critiques of us, while true for us, and we get them and we grant them, presuppose that there are universal binding laws in the universe that we all should agree to. C.S. Lewis, a former professor at Cambridge and Oxford, was looking into this issue of the fact that there are universal moral and ethics by which we critique each other and said, wait a minute, I can't have a law that I can make binding on you. I'm just one person and you're one person. I don't have the authority to bind you to my morals. There must be, if there's a universal binding set of principles, there must be someone with the authority to issue them. And since we are not bound morally and ethically by machines or impersonal things, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not bound to this music stand to treat it well. I feel no moral or ethical obligation. I may treat it well because I'll make it last longer and we as people will spend less. But see, moral obligations fall back to personality. If there are moral principles in the world that we find binding that we can use to critique the church, who wrote them? You're presupposing a universal lawgiver in your critique. Your critique, I submit, is powerful and persuasive, and we need to repent. But you need to rethink the grounds of your skepticism. Christian, if you are here, you are called to foreshadow the beautiful brotherhood and sisterhood that has been made spiritually in us and will be complete physically at the consummation of the ages. We're to foreshadow that now. We're to show the world what this cosmic unity, love, care is supposed to look like as the church universal and as a church local. We're fellow heirs. Everyone is to be treated equally no matter what background. We talked about this last week, so you can listen last week. I spent a lot of time on it. We're members of the same body. Spent some time on it last week, but I uh, want to think us through one more time this idea of being members of a body. You and you and you and you. If you are all Christians, you are members of each other. You don't even know each other's names. You don't even sit in the same part of the sanctuary. I'm pretty sure the four people that I just looked at don't know each other. I don't even know them all. But I went on a trip to Latin America many years ago, and I came back and I wasn't feeling well. And I was starting to have trouble in my internal system, 
and I couldn't figure it out. And finally, someone with experience said, I'm pretty sure I know what that is. You need to go to the Missionary Wellness Center because you probably have picked up a parasite. And that's exactly what had happened. A parasite sits inside of me in my intestines, and it just consumes the food that I give my body. It doesn't give anything back. It just consumes nutrients that are supposed to go to the different members until the body itself starts to fail. It takes the energy meant to feed other members of the body and does nothing but grow. I came for the preaching, the people, the praise, music, and the parking. If that's why you came, you know what you are? You're a parasite, not a member. Members serve each other, get involved in beautifying each other, get involved in contributing to each other. You are in the local church that you're at, you're either a member or eventually you're a parasite. There's no other way. Now, if you're here and you are investigating the Christian faith, I didn't just call you a parasite. Because your questions stimulate us. Your objections humble us. Your challenges to the Christian faith hold us accountable to be the kind of Christian we're called to be. You are some of the most livening, nutrient-filling things in this church. And if you're new and you're checking us out, you're not yet called to be a member in this way until this is your church. But if this is your church, choose. Member or parasite, who do you want to be? Finally, we are joint partakers of the promise, all of us. A couple of implications. I had a member of our church come to me. He was one of the founding members. And he said, after several years, I have to admit, when it comes to meeting new people, I choose. I choose the people that I think will interest me, engage me, or advance my social or career life. He was selecting in who he decided to meet with people up, up the ladder from him socially, socioeconomically, or professionally. He had to repent of that. If you're doing that, change. If you're a detail-oriented introvert with perfectionistic tendencies and you see some loud, smooth-talking extrovert moving from group to group, how do you feel? You know how you feel. I know how you feel. I'm one of those loud, smooth-talking extroverts, and I've finally gotten you to admit to me how you feel. You judge us. We're not horrible. We're just extroverts. Forgive us this sin and let us in. You smooth-talking professionals who know how to work the room, what about the socially awkward person sitting in the corner dressed like something out of Napoleon Dynamite? What do you do with them? You walk right by them. Stop walking. Talk to them. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did. That's what the Spirit came in us to do. That's what we're supposed to reflect. A mystery revealed. God's mystery. A wisdom displayed. God's wisdom. Starting in verse 7, it says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, there's His humility, this grace was given, there's His insight, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, we just talked about that, who created all things so that, catch this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul has just moved from the glorious mystery to his own calling from God and said, I've got to do two things. One, preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Secondly, display the manifold wisdom of God to the church. We've already talked about the unsearchable riches of Jesus coming and living and dying for us who hated Him. I don't have enough time. I could spend hours talking about Jesus and still never, ever, ever exhaust the riches and the beauty of Him. People sometimes say about our church, all you guys ever talk about Jesus. Week after week, year after year, I say amen. Amen. Yes, we do. We count it a privilege to do so because Jesus is everything. Jesus is the thing. He's the real thing. He's the whole thing, and He's nothing but the thing. He is Christianity, and Christianity is Him. He is my life, and for every Christian, He's yours. We will not stop talking about the unsearchable riches of Jesus, but let's quickly look at this idea that we are God's wisdom displayed in heavenly places. Men and women, there's a spiritual dimension. We've talked about that. Ephesians talks four or five times about heavenly places. It's the only book in the New Testament that has that phrase. There is a spiritual dimension right here, right among us. We used to think there were three dimensions, then realized through the advances of science there's at least four. Some some posit 11 to 15. But there's one here that we need to add, the spiritual dimension, where rulers and authorities and God are visible and palpable. Angels, fallen angels, cherubim, perhaps other kinds of spirits are here watching us. They're in this room, as it were, interacting us, and they see us, and they know what they see when they see us, and you know what they see? God says, look at them. This is my wisdom. Do you feel as a collective like God's wisdom? I don't. We're a stumbling, bumbling, mistake-prone, pride-filled, sin-filled group of people that are constantly messing up, and yet in the heavenly places God says, look. Look at my trophy. We mock the church. He marvels at the church. We criticize the church. He holds up the church as his trophy. Most of you were old enough to remember when the Raptors won. Remember that? Feels so long ago. Were you there when the parade happened? Millions were. I bet some of you were. I was there with my daughter. Millions lined the parade street. The nation went nuts. Why? Because we'd won something. You know, we'd won a trophy. 
And every time one of the players held up that trophy on the bus, we all went nuts. And people spent inordinate amounts of money to go to the first game of the Raptors next season because the banner is going to come down and be unfurled that we're world champions. A banner, a trophy to remind people of the great glory. But people who know basketball had even more intense joy because they knew how much the Raptors' management and coaching had organized this, schemed for this, traded, we're going to get Kawhi, grabbed Kawhi, then built the supporting cast around him, then built the load management into his season so that he was at his prime. And we needed a couple bounces off the rim against Philly to make sure we were there. But God gave Toronto this amazing victory. All that work that all those people put in for that moment is nothing compared to the work that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit put in architecting all of history and then incarnating the Son of God into history and then raising the Son of God from death in history and then sending the Spirit of God into the spirits of you and me to make known this great unsearchable mystery of God's grace. Who would have thought of this? What ruler, what authority would have thought of gaining power through suffering, of gaining victory by dying, of gaining love by being rejected? by gaining influence, by being mistreated, conquering empires by love and patience and service and suffering. The gospel is the power of God. It is the wisdom of the gospel that the foolish, dying, servant-hearted grace of Jesus emptying himself for us is the wisdom and the power to save us and change the world. We are God's display of the glorious, upside-down grace that he manifested in his son Jesus. We're more than preaching and people and parking. We're the manifest trophy of God to the angels, fallen and good, and the cherubim and the rulers of authority in the heavenly places. Billions of people have lived this before us. Approximately 2.4 billion people presently worship Jesus to the world, all united by one spirit. This to fulfill God's eternal purpose, which is the glorying of Jesus to the world that he died for. Men and women, let's be that beauty. Treasure what God treasures, his bride. Get in the game if you're not in the game. Love, pray, protect, serve, worship, care. Spend your time. Spend your money. Spend your energy to beautify and treasure the bride that he captured by his precious blood. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. I pray now that we would be inspired and encouraged by this idea of being your trophy, bought by the extravagant cost of your son. And we would be inspired and encouraged by your love to make your bride more beautiful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay.
I have time just for a little bit of questions here. There are a couple I will try to name. Uh, there's an important philosophical and religious debate about which comes first, meaning or existence. Uh, on your point, there must be a God to have written the universal binding moral rules. How do we uh, deal with the idea of existentialism, which is that existence comes before meaning and that it's up to us to give life meaning? Uh, I think existentialism is right that existence comes before meaning, and the one who had the first existence is the one who gives ultimate meaning to the world that he creates. So existentialism is right, but it posits no God and sticks creative initial foundational meaning into the lives of each individual. Put God back in, use their equation, and God's the one who gives us meaning and morals and rules. Great question. What is the church's encouragement and admonishment to people who contribute to the church but are reluctant to be a member on paper? Um, on paper means nothing. You're not a member on paper. When you become a member, you're not becoming a member on paper. You're going through the process of learning what it means to be part of the family. You're coming to a class and meeting other people. It's not just a piece of paper. If you think it's just a piece of paper, it's indicating a modern idea already. Great question. I would say how you act is as important as your paper, obviously. But the paper is itself a sign of what you covenant to do. So, both and. You knew I'd say that, didn't you? For the members of the church who do serve, the mindset that the church is an instrument can still sometimes be present. How do we shift our focus of the church to better align ourselves as a church community? Listen to this sermon twice a day for the next 30 days. You'll be fine. I don't know how to shift. That's why we're preaching it, right? Read these words, embed them in your heart. Think about who the church is meant to be right? Who the church is meant to be. We're calling on all of us to beautify it. Beautifying it sometimes means critiquing it, sometimes means fixing it. We know that. We're constantly trying to fix and critique it here. But it also means putting in the hard work and the mess of trying to make it better, and that ain't easy. It's just beautiful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. As we respond now in song, I pray that you would raise to our minds and our hearts, the glory of Jesus and the glory of the bride that He died for. May we respond to Jesus and His grace by beautifying His expression to the world that people may see Him more transparently in His church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please rise for the song of response. <laughs>